0: You've heard the phrase, the writing on the wall. The writing is on the wall, yes. That takes us back all the way to Daniel chapter 5, where the king of Babylon threw a lavish party for only a few, uh, well, a thousand or so people. And uh, that's where a, a figure of a hand appeared out of nowhere and a finger begins to write upon the wall, and the prophet Daniel was later called upon to interpret the meaning of this. And, of course, the meaning was the days of the kingdom are numbered, would soon be divided up between the Medes and the Persians. You know, there are moments in life, are there not, are there not when the, the clouds are on the horizon, the tide begins to turn and, and the writing's on the wall, so to speak. It seems to prophesy that things are going to get worse, <laughs> a lot worse, maybe spin out of control. It's, and it's that moment when, when hope sometimes begins to, to crumble into despair, where confidence and enthusiasm and anticipation, well, they like, give way to doubt and to pessimism and to Apathy. We gave it our best shot. It was it was that good school try. No, that no doubt that's the way that some felt uh, with the results of the election last week, as those numbers came in, and as Christians in general have watched the turning of the tide here in America. There is a temptation to think. Let's face it. the The writing's kind of on the wall. What's the use? It's just going to get worse. Can't fight City Hall. But as we look at the book of Acts, we see that as strong as the opposition may be, and as great as the setbacks to those efforts for good in the world may seem, God's plans are at no risk of failure. Let's walk through Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. We're going to go through the entire passage, but let's just read together the 12 through 16, yeah? Would you stand with me as we read from God's word this morning? Acts chapter 5, verse 12 says this. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. That's in the temple. and those afflicted with unclean spirits, they were all healed. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So if you were with us last week or you've been maybe reading through the book of Acts, you know what happened in those first 11 verses in chapter 5. Two members of the church They were outed for the sinful motives of their hearts. This this is the first scandal of the Christian church. Didn't take very long, did it? (laughs) What a terrible thing. What a dark stain on the snowy, snowy white record of the freshly formed church. This isn't the kind of thing you want to go public, is it? Not something. It's something you want to keep as quiet as possible. After all, what would something like this do to, to the ministry days going forward? What's it going to do to your mission and your effectiveness as a church? There was a sin problem lurking within the hearts of some in the church, and the leadership found out about it. What were they going to do about it? Well, if they're like a lot of churches these days, maybe they would have done a few different things. One, they could have, they could have just swept it under the rug, right? And dealt with it behind closed doors. Let's, let's swear everyone to secrecy, maybe even deny that this thing ever happened. Another course of action could have been, let's, let's just excuse it away, the news starts bubbling up to the surface. Well, we, we can just downplay the whole thing. We can chalk it up to, you, nobody's perfect. <laughs> what, do you, what do you expect? And just move on from there. Or maybe a third option. They could have just ignored it. Let's, let's just keep doing what we are doing. Move on. Look forward to the day. You know, After a little while, give it a, give it a month, maybe two months, no one will even remember this. All those three courses of action, they, they have their appeal, don't they? You know, it's certainly easier to do nothing than to, to step into what might be a, a messy confrontation, an investigation, maybe even disciplinary measures. And not only is it easier, well, it also protects our, our sparkly reputation, doesn't it? We're a church that, that looks like we've got it all together. I mean, there's there's no way we want to risk harm to that. We, what might be the fallout if we go down that road? What, what harm might it do to our people? There, there might be some talk. There might be some, some, some frustration. Some people might get upset. Maybe some people will leave our church. What's that going to say to people on the outside of our church that maybe are just checking out our church? Boy, they're going to run for the hills, aren't they? They find out what's going on here. What about the financial support? What about the giving What if if that goes down? We depend upon this. But you know, as attractive as, as any of these courses of action may be, they're just not acceptable in Christ's church. And God wants his church to be pure, doesn't he? Takes us back to Isaiah 1. Wash yourselves, God says. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. You see, God wants his people to be holy. And no matter how bad we think the fallout might be, we need to do what is right and be willing to call sin out and leading people to repentance and righteous living that's modeled here in the early church and that resulted in god striking two people dead wow what a mess this should have been can you imagine verse 11 we read it last week tells us great fear came upon the whole church and not only the church upon all who heard of these things and you might have you might think well, this is it. This is this is really bad news for this church. It's the beginning of the end. It's it's the writing of the on the wall. We saw some dramatic growth, but now the whole church probably going to fall completely apart. People people should be leaving in droves. And those who were considering the message of the the apostles, that gospel message, well, you would think that they would have just cut and run for the hills because who wants to join a church that is it that has that kind of danger in it. You want to be a member of this church? Well, guess what might happen to you? Did you see those two people? (laughs) We buried them yesterday. But that's not what happens here, is it? Not what happens. No, instead, we just read, miracles are being done regularly by the apostles. The power of God is working mightily through these men, even though there was real tension that was building between them and the religious leaders of it, that were there in the temple, they're fearlessly continuing to preach in public. All the other believers, it says, they, they were intimidated, but not the apostles. And what's more, the work of the apostles, it, it's proving more attractive than ever, and people were coming, coming, coming from miles around to be healed. And now, not just 3,000, not just 5,000, but multitudes, it says. We, we're not even counting at this point. Multitudes of men and women were turning from their sin and trusting Jesus. Is this explosive ministry or what? And it's all happening. Because God's people are walking in faithfulness and purity. They're obeying the call that God has given them. It's incredible. But as we have already seen, obedience and faithfulness does not mean the absence of opposition, does it? Verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Those who were holding the seats of power, they started feeling threatened. The high priest that could have referred to uh, Annas, the former high priest, or it could refer to his son Caiaphas, they, along with the party of the Sadducees, They had a good thing going. We've already talked about that. As long as they stayed within the lines and kept the peace with the Romans, well, they were enjoying tremendous wealth, and they were enjoying power and prestige and prosperity. And as they watched Peter and John and the other apostles defy their orders over and over again and proclaim this message that was casting them in a bad light, and what's more, it was winning the hearts of masses of people. It's no wonder they were upset. Jealousy had filled their hearts. We should be the ones that everyone should be looking at as the spiritual leaders. And it led them once again to lock up these witnesses. Now, that must have been concerning for some in the church. It happened once before. And God got us out of that. He delivered us. We're still growing. But you know what? Here it is again. Uh-oh. What's happening? Could this be the writing on the wall? Could this mean that that real teeth is going to be put to the threats that had previously been made? What's going to happen to those who oppose us? What are they going to do to us next? What if they take it up a notch? And what about another notch and another notch after that? But my friends, this is where God makes it abundantly clear who holds the real power. During the night, verse 18, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. <laughs> really, that's, that's him, because he, got, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Speak of Jesus. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. (laughs) And so metal doors and, and iron restraints and armed guards are no match for the power of God, are they? no match at all. Do you you think this boosted the faith of the apostles? Oh yeah. The angel orders them, go right back into the temple, immediately, go right back into the temple and start to preach. And the immediacy of their obedience, well, that tells you something of who their trust was in. Reading on in verse 21, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate, Of the people of Israel and sent them and sent to the prison to have them brought, have the apostles brought into us. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison. So they returned and reported We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. (laughs) This is fantastic, is it not? To see the self-righteous enemies of God completely baffled at what had just taken place. Luke writes, they were wondering what this would come to. With each step that they took here, they were beginning to realize that, that any control that they thought that they possessed is just unraveling before their eyes. They heard the report that the prison doors were still locked. They heard the report, the guards are still standing there, completely unaware of anything happened. They had to think something fishy's going on here. Something miraculous is probably happening here. How do you explain the guards didn't even realize that the prisoners were gone? You know, what must have been evident to the apostles should also be recognized by us, and that is that. Opposition to God's plans, no matter how ferocious, how threatening, no match for his power. No match. Psalmist wrote in Psalm 89, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise you still them. You crushed Rahab. That's that's probably a reference to Egypt. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you founded them. The north and the south, you created them. Tabor and, and Hermon, those are prominent mountain peaks, <laughs> joyously praise your name. You have a a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high as your right hand. Righteous and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted." Is this the God that you know? (laughs) Is this the one in whom you trust? (laughs) When you see what might be interpreted as the writing on the wall. Does your knowledge of him give you confidence in the sight of Life's challenges in, in the midst of of opposition and threats, and people around you who hold on to power, who are able to to hurt you, maybe socially, maybe economically, should you say something that they don't like. Let this be a reminder to us of who our King is and what He's capable of doing. Let us say with those those three young men who answered Nebuchadnezzar under the threat of being burned in a fiery furnace. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. Like the psalmist, may our cry in the face of terror be. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so the captain of the temple, uh, uh, of the temple guard, along with some of his men, they leave the council, they go into the temple, into Solomon's portico, and now they rather politely invite the apostles to come back to the council. The apostles go peaceably. What are they going to say this time? Here we go again. You know, we're, we got to put our foot down here, guys. You're starting to hinder our ministry. Enough of this. What, did, what are they going to say? Verse twenty-seven. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things, so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The the story has not changed, has it? The response has not changed. We continue to see the faithfulness, the boldness, no sign of softening, correct? Correct. No alteration in tactics here, no attempts to, to sweet talk or to soft sell or to cozy up to these unbelievers so that they might be inclined to trust in the message of the gospel. No, in fact, Peter makes his accusation here even stronger than it was before. If you look at the Greek, you will find a word that is used here and only one other place in the Bible. And it's a word that basically states, you did this with your own hands. You put Jesus to death with your own hands. He wasn't letting them hide behind the the fact that the Romans were the ones who drove the nails into Jesus. No, they bore, they themselves in that room, bore direct responsibility for the execution. They needed to know where the guilt belonged. We've noted it before. We should probably note it again. It's sinners who need a savior We don't lead people to Jesus by telling them how good they are. God did not love the world by sending his one and only son because people were just so lovable. No, it was when we were still sinners that Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. We don't do people any favors by dancing around their need for Jesus, do we? Just like Peter and the apostles, as we point people to the forgiveness that is in Christ, we have to remember that they need to know what it is that they must repent from and be forgiven from. And that's not always pleasant. In fact, I don't think it's ever pleasant. And I think it's always offensive. And of course, in every case, the response is just going to be, thank you. Thank you, thank you for showing me the error of my ways. Thank you for showing me my need for a savior, right? No. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged, wanted to kill them. We can tell people that we're blue in the face that they need Jesus, but unless the Spirit of God does a work in their heart and open their eyes to the reality of their sin, they're not going anywhere. Here's one possible response of of hard-hearted people. Open hostility. (laughs) These men were furious. There are other ways that people will respond, though. In many cases, it's going to be more subdued. Rather than violent rage, People will hear the words of the gospel, and it, it's just going to fall on deaf ears. It's just going to fall flat. And that was the case with the wisest, most respected, most renowned teachers in Jewish history. That the teacher of actually the Apostle Paul, Gamaliel was one of the greats. In fact, that term "rabbi teacher," it wasn't considered quite honorable enough to stick to him. Now, regard for him was so great that he was awarded the title raban, And that's why when he spoke up, he, he's not even part of the, the no, he's not even one of the members of the ruling Sadducees here, but he's given all ears. Verse 34 says, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up, gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, the, the men who are still in council there, men of Israel, take care that you are about to, what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, the Judas rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. You might even be found opposing God. You know, all practicality was Gamaliel's game. He reminds the council. A couple other instances where leaders became popular, had a following. In both cases, though, he notes after they died, well, the the movement just dwindled. It just the 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 following just came to nothing. And so he suggests this course of patient indifference, patient indifference to these followers of Jesus, citing, you know, if God's behind them, well, then, then they're going to be successful here. But, it, but if not, then, then everything's going to go the same way. It's all going to fall apart. Isn't that so often the way that we are tempted to look at things these days? That we're very quick to attribute the hand of God to everything that seems to be successful to us. If the if the people are coming, if, it, if it's making money, if the operation is expanding, we're likely to say, well, there it is. God's blessing is right there. But on the other hand, you know, if the money starts to shrink up, it's tight, numbers are stagnant, maybe numbers are dwindling, or op- there's opposition, there's roadblocks that just keep showing up again and again and again, well, we're inclined to think, that yeah, might not be from God. But success, at least the way we do, Tend to measure it, it's not always an accurate indicator of God's blessing, is it? I mean, how many ministries have we seen absolutely explode in numbers that are clearly not in line with God's word? I can think of several right off the top of my head. Now, how many pastors, how many faith leaders are out there? They're drawing impressive crowds, filling auditoriums, making tons of money, clearly. Leading people astray, at least if you read the Bible. <laughs> Gamaliel wanted to, to wait. Let's wait. Let's watch for the signs of success here. And that's going to tell us whether or not this Jesus thing is worth buying into, whether we should resist it or embrace it. He'd gladly jump on the winning team once all of the numbers had come, on, come in. But, but, you know, until then, I'm not going to cast my vote, and I don't think you should do so either. And just because he calmed the council down, we need, to be, we need to be reluctant to see him as any type of ally to the apostles. His silence in regard to what took place next, well, that makes it clear that he really didn't feel anything but indifference for them. Verse 39b says, so they took his advice, okay, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. That smells like justice, doesn't it? Oh, that's good old-fashioned justice. Beat them. <laughs> you know, if I was living in that time and witnessed something like this, my, my first thought may have been something like, "You know what? This this is this is the writing on the wall. This is the way it's going to go. This is our future here." Be so tempting to to. To begin thinking of some way to, you know what, what we need to do these days, we just need to fly under the radar, we need to avoid making waves, let's just quietly get on with life. Someone else, maybe a little bit more practical, like Gamaliel, might have had a few other thoughts. They may have thought something like, perhaps this whole kingdom of God thing that we just jumped into here, not as certain as we were first led to believe. Is there a chance that if we don't play our cards just right, then God's plan is, is going to fail here? Maybe we're going to be just like Judas's crew back then. It's now just dispersed. Maybe some of them were, were, were previous followers of, of Judas. <laughs> and they were there thinking, huh, eh, Yeah, here it is again. Binding to another pyramid scheme. but this wasn't the way the apostles responded. Look at verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. No disillusionment here. No throwing up their hands and saying, there it is, writing's on the wall, jigs up, people. Let's start to shut it down. Let's phase this thing out. But why? Why is that? Why why is it? We look at verse 41 and 42 and see this response that we see here. They're undeterred. They faithfully get on with their their mission. Are, Are they crazy? Are they clueless? Are they just too dense? They don't get it? Or could it be that they know that suffering for the name of Jesus is no indication of God's plans failing, but an honor to be celebrated? Friends, when, when the people of Christ's kingdom are dishonored for the testimony that they proclaim, that is an honor to be prized above all others. Just like those who are beaten and bruised for Jesus' name. Those who are ridiculed and put down and have their reputations just torn apart. They bear the marks of their Savior, like Paul talked about in Galatians 6.17. The more they are persecuted for the name of Jesus, the more that they know that they are representing him well. Each stripe, each harsh word, each blow from the opposition, well, that tells them that it, it must actually be true. The Spirit of Christ does, in fact, dwell within us. Peter wrote in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 13 Rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. These men, they got that. They knew that just like, just like Jesus' death was not a sign that God's plan was crumbling, but the glorious twist in all of human history that secured the life of his forever people, they knew that any suffering that they received in opposition... No indication that the kingdom of God was falling apart. No, this was not a sign of impending doom. If this were the writing on the wall, the writing simply told them that Christ, their king, sits upon his throne in glory and continues to call his people to bear witness to his name and consider it all joy when they meet trials of various kinds. (laughs) For Christians, suffering for the name of Jesus you know what? It is the writing on the wall. It tells us everything's going according to plan. Just like it was for Daniel, it should declare to us like a, like a trumpet's blast that though kings may continue to bark their orders from their earthly thrones, there is a high king who's got their number. It's only a matter of time before their terms and power are exposed for the pathetic, short-lived, impotent jokes that they are. (sighs) To everyone who would challenge his authority, God declares, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, I will do it. You know, when people try to walk over Christians, push them around. I think Christians, I think we tend to, 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 to think things, maybe say things like, how, how dare you? Or, or who, do you, who do you think you are? We get bent out of shape, don't we? And on the other hand, when the, the lame and pitiful attempts are made by people to us- usurp God's authority... <laughs> Any, any perceived threat there, that's just a figment of their imagination. God is not the least bit intimidated. Not the least. Why do the nations rage? I read it last week. The peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth, they set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. Did you hear that? Those of you who set yourselves up to pervert and remake creation into your own design. Enslave and abuse its inhabitants for profit. Did you hear that? You prop yourselves up. You make yourselves into some type of self righteous, godlike beings. And he laughs. Their days are numbered. Remember that. You look out at your world, you turn on the news, you see what is not honoring to God and what stands in direct opposition to God's people, thriving and flourishing. Is their success a measure of God's blessing? No, it's not. Days are numbered. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath And terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. My friends, that king is our king. He is our forerunner, our savior, the one who has already finished the race, laid claim to the victory cup, calls us forward to glory. If it's true that Jesus told us that we will have trouble in this world like he did in John 16, 33, that his followers, that they can expect to be persecuted just as he was persecuted, John 15, 18 to 21, then every time that we suffer for the name of Jesus, then that should be a reminder to us that things are going exactly as the doctor ordered. (laughs) He's absolutely in control. He's gone before us. He will most definitely accomplish his purposes. Jesus said, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. This is the way he said it would go down. Servants of the high king will share the ridicule and scorn that was endured by their master. What did he write to Timothy, Paul? The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure we will also reign with him. And if that is the case, then what's stopping us from marching forward with full force for king and kingdom? May we see the writing on the wall. Say no to discouragement. Say no to fear. Say no to silence. And boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. Again, again, and again, and again. If suffering for the name of Jesus is not evidence of God's plans failing, but an honor to be celebrated, then by all means, let us go forward rejoicing when we are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name and daily bear witness that Jesus is the Christ, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen? Father, we love you and we thank you. We are yours. You are our king. We have no other. May we live our lives in honor of you and in light of your glory, of your matchless, awesome wonder, in light of your sovereignty, In light of the awesome reality that you have pulled us undeserving, unlovable people out of darkness, brought us into your marvelous light, you have made us your own. Thank you for the honor that we have of bearing your name, even in a world that hates it. May we represent you well. May we not give any measure to discouragement, to despair, but with eyes fixed boldly, laser-focused on you, may we see the author and finisher of our faith and run with perseverance. We love you. Thank you for this time we've had in your word, Lord. We pray these things in the strong, mighty, and living name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.